You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Doing pretty good. My name is Matt Tolander. If you don't know me, I'm the spiritual formation pastor here on staff at Midtown, uh, and it's fantastic to be with you this morning. Please uh, grab your seats if you would. We are, uh, we are moving into a new series this morning. We just finished up our, our Psalms of Summer series is over. We finished it last week. Nobody on the road, nobody on the beach. The Psalms of Summer are gone. And uh, so we are starting a new series this morning in the book of Haggai. Raise your hand if you have heard of the book of Haggai. Okay, keep your hand raised if you could locate the book of Haggai in your Bible. Okay, keep your hand raised if you could give me like a quick summary of what the book of Haggai is about. Okay, so, <laughs> so we're going to look at a deep cut. We're going to look at a deep cut this morning. One of those, one of those indie prophets that you haven't heard of. Um, Haggai is what we call a minor prophet, a minor prophet in the Old Testament. Um, and that's not because he was not, his work was not important or his prophecy wasn't good. Uh, it's just because his book is one of the, one of the shorter ones. Uh, in fact, it's only two chapters long, probably only takes up like one spread in your Bible. And it's incredibly, uh, inc- incredibly powerful and incredibly dear to me uh, just because of the time of life when I first read Haggai. Uh, but let's start this way. What do you think of when you hear the word prophet or prophecy? Like what kind of associations jump up in your mind? Do you think about, you know, uh, someone who tries to predict the future? You know, do you think about uh, a time in Christian publishing not that long ago where, <laughs> where end times predictionism was kind of the, the hot topic of the day? Um, do you think of someone who, who speaks truth to power in a, in a compelling way. What do you think of when you think about a prophet? What do you think of when you think about prophecy? The word prophet in the Bible, it means spokesperson. It doesn't mean fortune teller. It means spokesperson. The defining feature of a prophet, it wasn't that they could predict the future. It's not that they would speak truth to power. The defining feature of a prophet in the scripture, a true prophet, is that they speak for God that they have the audacity to stand up in front of people and even in front of the leader of the nation and say, thus says the Lord. That's what a prophet does. And when we read the prophetic books, I always find it clarifying. That's that's the word that comes to mind when I think about what it's like to read the prophets. It's clarifying. Um, They clarify what it means for God's people to be holy as God is holy. They clarify what it means... um, you know, what justice means. They clarify God's definitions of justice and righteousness. They clarify for us God's priorities in the world. And then more than anything, the prophets, they, they're begging us to wake up to the spiritual reality of God with us and to then align our lives with God's intention for our lives. In other words, they call us to remember that God is our creator and we are his creatures. God is our creator and we are his creatures which means that God is meant to take a position of priority and a position of authority in our life. And so the prophets go to great lengths 
to make this point in the Bible. You know, think about, like in the New Testament, think about John the Baptist wearing, you know, camel furs inside out and living in the desert and eating bugs, right? He did all of this to try and make a point. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, Elijah calls down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. Uh, Hosea marries runaround Sue as a way to, uh, to show how God loves his unfaithful people. That's a 60-year-old reference, runaround Sue. Uh, you can find that song on Spotify later. Um, Ezekiel lays down on one side of his body for 430 days to symbolize the 430 years that Israel had lived in sin. Uh, and Jeremiah took a, a clay pot and he stood up in front of all the Judeans and he said, this pot represents Judah. And then he smashed it to smithereens and he said, this is what God has a mind to do to y'all unless you make some serious changes in your life. And Jeremiah was right. He, he warned them and he warned them and he warned them and he warned them until 586 B.C. And in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar II, the king of Babylon, laid siege to Jerusalem and sacked it and destroyed it. After 15 years of conflict between Babylon and Judah, the city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, thousands of Judeans were carried off into exile in Babylon, which is in present-day Iraq. And Jeremiah after he tried so hard to warn the people about what was going to happen. He looked at the devastation of Jerusalem, and he wrote five poems of sorrow about what he saw. We know them as the Book of Lamentations. And here's how the Book of Lamentations opens. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. And now she's like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the nations has now become a slave. Psalm 137 was written during this period of Babylonian captivity. And here's, here's how Psalm 137 recounts the emotional experience of being captive in Babylon for these people. Psalm 37, it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the willow branches we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? It was devastating. It was traumatic. And the thousands of Judeans who'd been taken into captivity were exiled there in Babylon until 539 B.C. when Cyrus the Great of Persia conquered the Babylonians. And within two years, Cyrus allowed the Judeans to return home. They would return home as clients of Persia. It was an economic decision. You know, it, I can make more money if I send them back home to restart their economy and then send tribute payments to me. That's more profitable than if I just keep them here as slaves. So he sends the Judeans home. Uh, along with everything that had been seized by the temple, or from the temple by the Babylonians, and Cyrus promised to personally finance the rebuilds. You know, so he's spending some money to make some money here. Uh, and all of that is recorded by Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote in the first century A.D. Now, when Cyrus allows the Judeans to return home, some of them stay in Persia, some of them scatter to the wind, but some of them do return home to Jerusalem, where the city walls have been torn down, and the temple has been destroyed and burned, and the fields have laid fallow for two whole generations. Some return home to rebuild. And the first group to come home is led by a, name, a man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was, his grandfather was Jeconiah. And Jeconiah was the second to last king of Judah. 
And so Zerubbabel would be next in line for the throne of Judah if Judah were still a monarchy, but it's not anymore. They're clients of Persia. And so Zerubbabel, is, he's just a functionary of the Persian Empire who's been tasked by Cyrus to govern the province and to rebuild the temple. Now, along with Zerubbabel, another person comes home about whom we know very little. Uh, we think he may have been a priest at one point. Uh, he probably was not born in captivity. He probably survived the whole exile and was returning home to Judah as one of the few elders who could remember what, what Jerusalem was like before the catastrophe, and his name is Haggai. And for 14 years, after returning home from exile, for 14 years, Haggai lives among this decimated population of the remnant of what remains of Jerusalem. And over the course of those 14 years, Haggai observes that the remnant people have become ambivalent toward rebuilding the temple. They become ambivalent. They started to rebuild, But then they abandoned the project, and they turned their attention, they redirected their attention toward making sure their own lives were secure. You see, by this time, 14 years later, King Cyrus had died in Persia, and King Darius had taken the throne. And so the subsidies that had come from Cyrus stopped coming. And this caused the economy in in Judea to tilt, and then a drought struck. And that caused crop failures, and that impacted the livestock population. And so then you get resource scarcity and inflation that set in. And as Haggai is watching all of this happen, he begins to wonder whether it has something to do with the unfinished temple, which has now laid in ruins for 67 years. And on August 29th, 520 BC, Haggai goes to speak with the leaders of the community, Zerubbabel and Joshua, who is the high priest. And we'll look at what Haggai has to say. So please stand, uh, if you're able, for the reading of God's word this morning. We'll read from Haggai chapter 1, the very words of God. It says this, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, so in other words, August 29th, 520 B.C., The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Yozadek, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, Lord, may the the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen.
Let's look at this passage together. It starts with this, with this introduction. August 29th, 520 BC, Haggai comes to speak to Zerubbabel, who is the political leader, and to Joshua, who is the high priest, the spiritual leader of the community. And the people uh, have an excuse for the unfinished temple. Evidently, it had been a topic of discussion in the community, and that discussion has produced an excuse, and the excuse is, it's not the right time. It's not the right time to rebuild the temple. Now, there are several reasons why they might have thought this. They probably had explanations, you know, just like you and I have explanations for why we don't do the things that God wants us to do. They had explanations, too. Maybe, maybe some of the reasoning was economic. You know, maybe they thought, well, we don't really have the resources. You know, those subsidies stopped, and there's all this scarcity. Maybe it was a logistical problem. You know, we don't really have the skill or manpower. I mean, when Solomon built the first temple, he had so many people. I mean, we can't really do it. Uh, maybe, there was, maybe there was an emotional component to this, too. Like, it's, it's hard enough work lugging stones around, but when every stone is a reminder of the traumatic experience we've all just shared, it's not just back-breaking work, it's also heartbreaking work. So maybe that's at play. It could be that there's kind of a defeatist attitude that's taken root in them. You know, the, 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 if we rebuild the temple, it'd never be as amazing as it was before. What's the point? And it, it could even be that they have a theological explanation for why they haven't started rebuilding. You know, Ezekiel had prophesied in Babylon that God would miraculously build a new temple. And so maybe they thought, well, we don't want to get out ahead of, of what God is going to do. And if, if God is supposed to build the, the miraculous temple, then for us to build it, maybe that would actually be sinful. So maybe we shouldn't. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, all kinds of ways they could have come to this conclusion that it's not the time to rebuild the temple. But whatever their explanation for it is, the controlling belief in the minds of these people is it's not the right time to rebuild the temple. And the fruit of that controlling belief is ambivalence, which is expressed through their inaction. So Haggai knows that God wants to subvert that controlling belief, that it's not time to build the temple. And God wants to replace it with a different controlling belief. And so Haggai brings God's response in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Got them. I mean, how, how are you going to argue with that? Their motivations, their priorities, they're not hidden from God. And neither are ours, by the way. The word that's translated paneled in this verse, it either means roofed in, which would indicate that the people had completed building their own homes, or it could mean paneled as in ornamental wood paneling, which is a little bit less likely. But if Haggai is speaking to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two leaders, maybe their houses were a little bit more ornate. Maybe they were able to recover some of the stuff from Solomon's palace or from the original temple and incorporate that into new houses. But the conflict between expenditures on our home or even a luxury home and uh, investment in God's work remains to this day. Um, but here's a question that we have to ask. Why is God so indignant about the temple? Right? He seems very frustrated with them that, that the temple has not been rebuilt. What's the big deal about it? Why has he been out of shape about, about the temple? What does the temple matter? You know, if you go back to 2 Samuel 7, where David first has the idea to build the temple, do you remember what God says to David through the prophet Nathan? 
I mean, David is thinking, wow, I have this incredible palace and the ark of the Lord, the Lord's presence is living in a tent. I should build God a house. And God says to David, you know, David, it's really cute that you think I need a house. Like, I don't need a house. I am the Lord Almighty. I am the living God. I have never had a house. I didn't ask you for a house. In fact, if anyone is going to build a house here, it's going to be me. I'll build you a house, David. I will build you a dynasty and a line. I mean, by God's own admission in 2 Samuel 7, God, um, he neither needed nor wanted a temple in the first place. So why is it important to God now? The simplest answer, of course, is that it's not really about the temple. It's not really about the temple. What is it about? Well, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of the heart. These people are ambivalent toward rebuilding the temple for a reason. Why? It's because they're ambivalent toward God. That's what's being revealed in their inaction. It's not that they've totally abandoned God in their consciousness. Um, It's just that God is now very low on the list of priorities You know, God is a part of their life, but God is just a part. And many of us are the same way, right? I mean, we want God to be a part of our life, but many of us aren't actually willing to do the work to make God the priority in our life. We're open to hearing God's opinions on certain things, but we aren't necessarily willing to make God the supreme authority. You know, we want God to be our consultant, (laughs) Uh, our, our helper, but not our Lord. I mean, you've probably heard this illustration before, but it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're like driving along life's road on your journey, and someone tells you about Jesus, and you think, well, yeah, that's amazing. I want Jesus. So you pull over, and you say, Jesus, get in the trunk. You pop the trunk. You can hop in there. If I ever have a problem, you can help me out. Like, if I get a flat, the jack's already back there. I mean, I can just pop the trunk, and you can get out, and you can fix my tire. Or if I get in like a road rage incident and someone is mad at me and yelling, you know, I could pop Jesus out of the trunk and he could go and and intervene. He could really help me out. And you're like, well, that's not, I would never put Jesus in the trunk. Well, so maybe you open the passenger side door and you're like, Jesus, get in the, get in the car. I want you in my life. You can, you can ride shotgun. You can tell me where to go. You can navigate for me. I'll even let you pick what music I listen to. And you know, and you can, you can pass me snacks and give me my daily bread so that I don't have to take my hands off the wheel. But if I do need to take my hands off the wheel, you know, like to unwrap a burrito or if I want to teen wolf this van or something like that, then Jesus, then you can take the wheel and then you can drive when I have something more important that I want to do. Um, <laughs> and it's silly, right, to think that, well, you know, yeah, well, he can tell me where to go and he can do all these things for me, but who is really the one in control, and the one with the hands on the wheel. The prophets, and especially Haggai, they encourage us to get out of the driver's seat and to put Jesus in the driver's seat and say, take me wherever you want me to go. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. When you say do this, I will obey. So here's what the Lord says to them in in, in verse 5 says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. This phrase, give careful thought, sometimes translated consider, um, or, or the, the, you might say think on it. Think on this. Uh, it's repeated five times in the two chapters of Haggai. 
This is the key phrase. Give careful thought to your ways. He says, you planted much, but you harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. I mean, this is, this is the picture that God is painting through the book of Haggai of what it looks like to have God be a part of your life and not the priority. It makes it impossible to find fulfillment in everything else. In fact, you find that like if you're kind of half in with God, then really you sort of get the worst of both worlds. You get the worst of the religious part, and you still get the worst of the world part, uh, and you're not committed either way. Um, This list of afflictions that we see in these couple verses, it echoes another chapter of Scripture, one that you've heard me talk about a lot when I've been up here. It's Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28... Uh, what's going on is that God had made a a relationship covenant to the fledgling nation of Israel, uh, which included blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And one of the primary curses for disobedience, for breaking this covenant, for cutting off the relationship with God through disobedience, one of the primary curses is exile and captivity in a foreign land, which all of these folks had just experienced. And so when Haggai quotes verbatim, Deuteronomy 28, 38, you planted, you will plant much in the field, but harvest little. When Haggai quotes those words verbatim in this chapter, it's meant to be a clue. It's meant to be a clue to Zerubbabel, to Joshua the high priest, and to all the people. It's meant to be a clue that they have not finished learning the lessons of exile. He's saying you may be home, you may be rebuilding your houses, but there's still work to do when it comes to rebuilding the relationship with God. And that's the priority. So God gives a remedy in verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Now, we know from the book of Nehemiah that the hills around uh, Judea contained olive and myrtle and palm trees, but the wood required for this kind of project would have to be imported. Um, When King Solomon built the first temple, he imported cedar trees from Lebanon. Um, And it raises the question, I mean, how does Solomon get cedar trees from Lebanon uh, to Judah? Who carried them and measured them and, and cut them? Who cut the stone and hewed it and put it in place? Well, 1 Kings 4 through 9 tells this story, and we learn that basically... Solomon used his obscene wealth to pay for the materials, and he used slave labor to build the first temple. It took seven years to complete. It was majestic. It was massive. Um, And there's no way that this new temple can, can compare to that. There's no way the new one can be just as impressive as the first, but nevertheless, God says he's going to take pleasure in this temple and be honored by it. Why? Well, one thing that means is that the honor God is going to get from the temple is not going to be because of the money or the design or the size of it. What's going to honor God about this temple? This is really, really important. God will be honored by this new temple because slaves didn't build it and a king didn't bankroll it. This temple would be built by the people. It would be built by the people. It would be built by this this remnant, maybe only 10% of the original population of Jerusalem. They would build it. They would resource it. 
If they want the temple, if they want to be able to offer sacrifices to God the way that the covenant required, if they wanted to recommit their relationship with God, then they would have to take that responsibility on themselves to rebuild this temple. And so God, uh, God goes on to elaborate. He goes on to elaborate a little bit. He says in verse 9, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. God called for that drought. So now we see a contrast happening in this passage. Because God calls for the wind to blow the harvest away, and the wind says, yes, Lord. God calls for a drought on, on the field, and the rain says, yes, Lord. God calls the people to rebuild the temple, and they say, well, is it really time to do that? They've forgotten that they are created, and that God is creator. They've gotten it mixed up. And we're at a pivotal point now in the story where we are about to see how these people uh, respond to God. But before we move forward, I want to try and put us where they are uh, a little bit. And so, because um, they have a choice to make in the story, and I think many of us probably have a choice to make this morning as well. So just by show of hands, how many of y'all grew up in church or were kind of raised in a Christian household or otherwise inherited your faith? Okay, a lot of us. Me too. And so I feel confident trying to explain this phenomenon. Sometimes the church or the tradition or the faith that we grow up with is like the first temple. It's like the first temple. Uh, it's a good thing. It orients us to God. It facilitates our relationship with God for a long time. And then just like Nebuchadnezzar did to the first temple, something comes into our life and it topples our faith. Like, it just, it just knocks us over, and it's in pieces on the ground. And it could be any number of things. I mean, it could be suffering, it could be loss, it could be rejection, it could be um, doubt. But something comes in and knocks it over, and we experience exile. We experience inwardly the feeling of being like, well, something is different now between me and God, and it's not like it was before. And we look back, and, um, you know, we experience this disillusionment, and this doubt, and maybe even anger with God, and the relationship goes distant, and the love goes cold. And you, then you think about how it used to be between you and God, and how you used to be so close, and how you used to be so passionate, and you begin to think, I don't know if it could ever be that way again. That's what these people are experiencing. And if you're in that place right now, I want you to know that you do have options. You do have a choice to make. So give careful, careful thought to your ways. The choice is, will you rebuild? Or will you live the rest of your days trying to ignore the pile of rubble where your love for God used to be? Because that's the choice these people are facing. As we look at this last set of verses, and especially if you're, if you're in that place right now or if you've been in that place, I want you to pay close attention to the people's response and what God does based on that response in these last few verses, okay? Watch for the people's response 
and watch for what God does based on the people's response. Here's the response of the people, starting in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Yozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. So you see it? They recognize that this message is coming from God. They obey the voice of the Lord, and they fear the Lord. And then what happens? Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord of the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Haggai gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Yozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius, 23 days after Haggai went to meet with Zerubbabel and Joshua. So what we see is that when the people obey and fear the Lord, the Lord rewards them with his empowering presence. He rewards their obedience with his empowering presence. He says, I will be with you. And then he stirs up their spirit. He strengthens their spirit. So the reward for their obedience is God's empowering presence. So when you think about the thing in your life right now that like you know what God wants you to do and you've been avoiding it, um, this is what you're saying no to by avoiding that thing. This is what you're saying no to through your disobedience. You're saying no to the empowering presence of God in your life. Because that's the reward for obedience. Does God, does God love you? Yes. Will God forgive you? Yes. Does God care about you? Yes. But if you choose to live ambivalently toward God, do not expect to experience his presence and do not expect spiritual power to flow out of your life. We only get those things when God is our priority and when God is our authority in life. But if God is your power, or your, your, your priority and your authority, then his power and his presence will be yours in abundance. So here's, here's, I think, the lesson, the lesson of this first part of Haggai. If you can't find God, go back to where you lost him. They lost him when the temple came down. And they spent all this time in Babylon living, wondering, where are we with God? I mean, does he care? Does he see this at all? Is he even real? Is there, is there any hope for us at all? I mean, they've been through that place, and some of you have been through that place, some of you are in that place, and for some of you, that place is coming. And in that moment, they find God right where they left him. As they rebuild the temple, and as they re-engage the relationship in that way through, through their obedience. So if you can't find God, go back to where you lost him and build the relationship and God's promise to you is that if you do that, his empowering presence will be with you. And then it's up to you, for, up to, you to decide whether that's enough of a reward for you. But that is his promise. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't promise them, you know, hey, if you rebuild the temple, the, the harvest is going to come back and the livestock is just going to flood to your town and there's going to be money flowing. He doesn't, he doesn't promise them that. But he says, I'll be with you. And for them, that reward was enough, and they started to build. 
as our, um, as our communion servers distribute the elements, I want to talk just briefly about how Jesus relates to this story uh, and to the temple. There's all, all kinds of different things that Jesus taught that I, I think are sort of echoes of some of the things in Haggai. You know, when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Doesn't that sound like, like kind of what God is doing in the book of Haggai, right? You're seeking all of this stuff. You need to seek me first. Or uh, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go and, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey, and what? And I will be with you. I'll be with you. Or in, in, in Acts chapter 1, when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the very ends of the earth. He says some things that echo it, but what was Jesus' relationship to this temple? What's his relationship to this temple? He worshiped there. He offered sacrifices there. Jesus loved this temple. When you read the Gospels, one thing that Jesus never apologized for ever once was his heart for God's house. He walked into the temple, he turned over the tables of the money changers, and he said, this house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples when they were leaving the temple one day? This is after Herod the Great had made all kinds of additions to it and made it a whole big thing. Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple one day, and the disciples look over their shoulder, and they look up at the temple, and they go, man, it's really beautiful, isn't it? Have you ever noticed how beautiful this temple is? And what does Jesus say to him? Do you remember? He says, every single stone of that temple is going to be thrown down, and not one will be left on top of another. And in 40 years later, A.D. 70, that happened, when the Romans finally destroyed the temple. Or do you remember that Jesus said to the Pharisees, something greater than the temple is here? Something greater is the temp than the temple is here. See, we don't have a temple that we're trying to rebuild, but something greater than the temple is here. Jesus was talking about himself. Why is he greater than the temple? Jesus is greater than the temple because he's greater than the priests, he's greater than the law, and he's greater than the sacrifices. He's greater than the priests because he's the son of God and the son of man. And he is holy, and yet he's also willing to come close to the lowly and unclean. That's why he's better than their priests. He's better than the law because he fulfilled the law in perfect faithfulness to God and perfect faithfulness to us. And he's greater than the sacrifices because his sacrifice on the cross was total and permanent and a one-time, once-for-all atonement that only he could achieve. That's why he's greater than the temple. And that's what we celebrate when we take this bread and this cup. We celebrate that one greater than the temple is mediating our relationship with God now. We celebrate the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.